Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Dean Firth. He is a sommelier and the beverage director over at Sushi Nakazawa, which you can find in Washington, D.C., New York City, and coming soon to Los Angeles, California. I had the pleasure of going to Sushi Nakazawa in D.C. earlier this year for their lunch service. Great experience, awesome experience, omakase counter. I think it was like 20-some courses giant list of beverage options could do beverage pairing too as well so it was a lot of fun and you're kind of in and out in 90 minutes or so which is also awesome because you know sometimes going to some of these michelin starred restaurants and everything the whole thing whole event can take three hours and sometimes that's great but sometimes you just want to be in and out and get great food and kind of do it under two hours you know it's a lot like movies you know sometimes you want a long movie that's three hours but sometimes you want one that's 90 minutes to get along with other stuff you want to do in the day too so i had an amazing experience haven't been to the one in new york yet we'll be going to that one here soon next couple months um, once i make it over to new york sometime early next year but wanted to have dean on just to talk sushi and kind of wine and pairing wine with sushi and also sake uh, it was kind of one of the things he had to learn when he started there at sushi nakazawa's he didn't have a very big sake background at the time and really had to go into it so we spent a good chunk of the time talking about sake and how you know he got into it and then all the different aspects of it and how it's far more diverse and harder to get information than most of us probably realize except for those that have giant sake lists you know keiku has a giant sake list in loki uh, over at sushi note has a pretty sizable sake list and wine list too as well so um, those are really the only other two folks that we've had on kind of the beverage side of a sushi restaurant on we've had a couple sushi chefs too as well but it's just one of the things that I love. It's one of my favorite foods. And anytime I get a chance to talk with somebody about it, uh, I'm always down to have them on. And it's just kind of finding people that the language barrier isn't going to be an issue with because I don't speak Japanese. I'm not fluent in it or anything like that. So it's a little tough to have some people on unless we did something with like a translator or something like that. But they would kind of also have to have their own translator already set up, somebody that they're comfortable with that would be able to communicate effectively and also accurately what they're trying to get across to as well. So it's just a challenge we haven't been able to kind of overcome and navigate yet, but something kind of always on the back burner. But you can follow Dean uh, on Instagram. It's at Grand Crew Jew is his handle. Uh, you can also follow the restaurant Sushi Nakazawa. They have a couple different handles. So one for basically each location of the restaurant. The main one is just at Sushi Nakazawa, which is really their New York restaurant. Then there's at Sushi Nakazawa DC, and then also at Sushi Nakazawa LA. So you can follow us on Instagram as well at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. All links to the episodes are up there on the website. There's a master page, and then also we have individual pages for all of our guests where we put any food photos from the restaurant or wine photos or anything like that, photos of the establishment, whatever. Um, they're all in kind of the profile, contact information, links to the individual episodes you can find too as well. It's newest to oldest, um, so latest episode on top, latest guest, and then as you scroll down, it gets further and further in the back catalog. But check that out if you haven't. We're always updating that. New information, new updates as people open new restaurants or move to new restaurants or different concepts on the works, different events that they're doing, collaborations, all that stuff. Make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the platforms. You can find us just either search Spoon Mob on your platform. You can go to our Instagram bio, a link tree. We have uh, different links there too as well for you. We put links in all of our posts uh, in the stories when we have a new episode drop. So you can click that too. So a lot of different avenues to find us. Just look for kind of the orange and white icon, uh, whatever platform that you're using. We're on all the other social media stuff. Really, it's Instagram using the podcast platform and then the website are kind of the three places that were most active so without any further delays here is my conversation with dean firth the beverage director of sushi nakazawa which you can find in washington dc new york city and also los angeles california cool well thanks again for coming on the podcast taking some time out of your day to come on and talk about your career and and wine and sushi and all this stuff uh, as i kind of mentioned been to Sushi Nakazawa in D.C., have not been to the New York location yet, but that is on the horizon sometime early next year. I will be able to stop in and check that out. Sushi, I'm just a big fan of. That's one of my favorite things. You know, we don't really have great sushi here in Columbus, Ohio, despite what people on the Reddit boards would say. But I'm a really big fan of kind of the omakase experience and, and all that stuff. So 
but also super into wine and everything. So you're running the program there. And I want to get into how you wound up there and everything you got going on and potential expansion, all that stuff. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. I think context matters. I think it helps kind of outline why somebody does what they do now. How did you kind of first get involved with wine? I think you went to college for film, but like your family is full of like lawyers. Correct. Ended up somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Worked in the film industry for a brief time, brief time that I was in college studying film. So I, you know, ended up on a couple of cool sets. I was working on Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and um, Thirty Rock, and nothing more glamorous than being a you know Firewatch production assistant. But at least getting my foot in some cool doors. Like most people starting out in that field, needed to supplement it with something on the side to actually pay my rent, which um, around 2008 turned into uh, being a busboy at a restaurant called Bella Blue on the Upper East Side, which still there to this day. From there, you know, it was a bar back, moved up from being a busboy to a bar back. And with that, I was helping with um, seller inventory a little bit. So that was the first time um, just seeing a seller in general, getting my hands on, you know, organizing bottles and, you know, understanding how to logically put things in place led to me being a food runner at Quality Meats for about a year, um, big order cover a night steakhouse in Midtown. And that was, you know, formative of just learning how to run up and down stairs all night and, and keep up with the physical endurance of it. Probably the most physically laborious job I've had working in the industry, um, carrying those, those trays of sirloins up and down three flights. And from there, I worked at um, Park Avenue Bistro, which has since closed um, on Park Avenue South. It was my first server position. And then from there, ended up working at Bar Balloud on the Upper West Side, one of uh, Daniel Balloud's restaurants, just right across from Lincoln Center. And um, someone who grew up on the Upper West Side, it was Ironically, when I was growing up, going to school around the, cult, the corner of ethical culture, the um, place I would get breakfast in the morning. And then later on, ended up being where my grandmother who lived around the corner um, and I would go get lunch. So I had, uh, you know, spent a little bit of time in that space before working there. And um, in a way, you know, found kind of drew me to wanting to work there in a sense, or at least that, you know, familiarity with the space, but um, dropped off a resume, ended up getting an interview. And then that was kind of the, uh, the segue point of starting to work for a program where you know, every night we were just opening, you know, the craziest Burgundy and Rhone and, you know, rare California wines and whatever, you know, odds and ends, European treasures. We were just serving out of out of large format by the glass. And through that, as a 23-year-old, I was just, you know, getting to rapid volume, um, taste some of the greatest, most exclusive wines on the planet. And, you know, drew me, I think, just in a stronger sense of passion um, towards that in a time where Kind of had to dig in and figure out which, you know, long shot career I was going to try to pursue and uh, decided to follow the grape juice instead of the film reel. You know, I was there for about two years and that was really, uh, you know, my first just broad scope training into, you know, how great wine was, what, you know, real wines of soul and complexity and, and sense of place um, were and how to start building that just reference point of different flavors and aromatics and you know personalities of different GIs. And yeah, it just was completely captivating and, and fascinating. And I'm definitely the kind of person that, you know, is either disinterested in something or completely dives down the rabbit hole on it. And I uh, just found myself constantly studying and going to tastings and, you know, started pursuing my, my WSET certification at that point. You know, this was all still while being a, a server and a mentor, uh, Michael Madrigal, who worked there for a while, who was, I'd say, the first person who inspired me to pursue wine and that it could be something that was, you know, fun and unpretentious um, while requiring you to, you know, study on a really incredible level and, and really dedicate yourself to something. So Barbalude was really that experience for me. Uh, moved on to Boulay after that in, in the pursuit of actually becoming a sommelier. Found out very quickly that I did not know how to work in a fine dining restaurant and execute with polish. That lasted about six months and ended up getting fired from Boulay as a, a front server. Didn't actually uh, make it up to becoming sommelier. And um, at that point, got a job offer at a restaurant called Commerce, which is on the same street as Nakazawa, and that became my my first sommelier position. So it was a neighborhood spot that you know the chef that had worked in in fine dining, but opted to um, create a little more of a casual environment with you know high level of execution of food, and that was a really great environment. As my first you know training wheels with food pairings, and um, you know having kind of a more eccentric focused wine list to pull from, and really kind of formulating my ethos with with food pairing, and yeah, really having a great environment to just kind of experiment and. I feel like I have a you know a guillotine hanging over my neck, and if uh, a fork isn't marked properly, that so I was there for a straight year. Got an offer to actually return to Boulay as a, a sommelier, and that was kind of like my my phoenix rising out of the ashes moments, and got a second chance in the position that I wanted to, and ended up working as more or less the right hand of my second mentor, um, who 
I would say taught me more of the organizational aspects of the job and, you know, not just being able to, you know, be charming and sell on the floor, but, to, you know, run a successful business behind the scenes and, you know, a little more of a, a militant sense of uh, French fine dining discipline, and especially, you know, the level of seriousness that I assigned to it after how the first experience went. So um, that was my real, you know, first step into, you know, working in a, a big league restaurant as a, a floor sommelier. And um, again, just got to work in an environment where every night we're just, you know, selling Grand Cru Burgundy and first growth Bordeaux. And, um, you know, just in my 20s, just tasting these insane wines, which just um, I would never be able to afford in my lifetime, um, could never hope to. So um, that was very formative, although difficult experience. You know, Boulay is notorious for being kind of a chaotic environment. White tablecloths teaches you how to um, work on your feet and react quickly and, um, you know, just set yourself up for success in um, environments that can be very you know, demanding, exacting. So that was kind of a floor som career. And then that led into my first beverage director position at Bettany, another restaurant that has since closed, which um, you know, I told them when I started in Nakazawa, it's just historically nowhere has remained open that had been a sommelier at for more than two years. So just, you know, careful, but going on seven years here, something good going. Bettany was essentially a lot of expat 11 Madison Park uh, chefs and, and employees and had that kind of similar style of service and, and food. You know, that was, that was my first buyer position. So that was just like right into being thrown right into, you know, the middle of a restaurant that was, you know, in the spotlight in New York and really creating a name for itself. And uh, I was there for about 12 months. And then it was suddenly announced that that restaurant was closing. So that was in the middle of us chasing two Michelin stars. And, you know, again, just being in this environment that, just demanded all of you 100 hours a week. And after that, you know, the intensity of that experience and everyone on staff gave to what that restaurant was, and then it just suddenly becoming nothing. I you know took about eight months off and really was deciding what I wanted to do next. Knew I didn't want to do French fine dining again. I needed kind of a, a reboot to what I was doing in my own career as a sommelier. And uh, for when I was working at Commerce, my first position, I had taken care of the Nakazawa team and, you know, eaten there when they first opened. And did have this, you know, really, you know, when I can think of the meals on, you know, one hand that it really changed my life. It was that first omakase with Chef Nakazawa and just seeing what, you know, what sushi can be, what you can do to an ingredient to bring out its full potential without really transforming it in any way. And so I'd always just hold on to that meal as, um, you know, just one that was really memorable and, and impactful for me. And they, you know, randomly had reached out at the end of my, uh, my kind of nomad phase of doing mercenary psalm shifts here and there and asked me what I was doing. And I said, uh, not a whole lot right now. And, you know, pitched that they had wanted somebody to come in and, you know, kind of build up the program in New York, but then quickly move into a, a group buyer role with the DC opening. And it was just another thing, you know, like Barbaloon of, uh, you know, a place that had meant something to me or with people that, you know, just had this kind of gut feeling that, that led me in the direction of uh, Sushi Nakazawa. I got here and realized that I knew very little about sake. So that presented its its own challenge for for six months. Fairly harsh learning curve, but you know, it was really humbling to again come from a 10 years of experience of tasting all those crazy wines and everything. And then you just, you know, approach sake and no matter how well you know how to organize information or learn things on the fly, you just haven't experienced tasting those things. So you're really starting from scratch in a way. As I mentioned, I'm someone who dives down the rabbit hole on things when I'm interested. So that was just like kind of a new, a refreshing opportunity 10 years into into the game and doing this that I got to just start over something new and, and become excited again. And that was uh, about six years ago. Kind of going back, when you're working in the film industry and you're doing the restaurant thing on the side, what were you kind of pursuing? What was your thought process in the film industry? Like, where did you want to go? Did you want to be a director? Did you want to be a writer? What did you kind of envision your career in the film industry being, like the end goal? Directing and, and cinematography. And I wanted to be in charge of some kind of program, but wasn't sure in, in what field. Yeah, I was a, you know, a strong writer in school when I was younger and uh, screenwriting was something I was interested in, but specifically directing and cinematography. So when you get to kind of that point where the film industry isn't kind of panning out or is it, you're not moving as far up or forward as you kind of would like, did you ever consider possibly being a lawyer or was that never an option? Because like your family is like all lawyers. Yeah, straight lawyers across the board, um, which I suppose pushed me to some other end of the spectrum. Definitely negotiating involved in, in my line of work. So I never pictured myself uh, sitting in an office or having a classic cubicle job. I like to be able to, to run around and move. And there's something about it that uh, seeing what that kind of work was like or you know, that lifestyle just made me want to do something different. Was there like a moment for you that you knew the film industry for you was kind of 
that was it and you wanted to do something else and it wound up being kind of wine like did you have that singular event where it was like this doesn't really feel like it's going to work out like but i'm interested in this thing over here there, there was a time where i was juggling both and that meant uh late restaurant hours and early uh film location shoots so just from a practical standpoint uh, that didn't last very long you know restaurants and the you know the dedication that i ended up giving to them they really became all-consuming and that was between the, the hours spent on the floor and then the um you know the extracurricular studying and going out to tastings and motivating yourself through all that that really you know took me just putting the blinders on to you know a lot of other things at first to be able to catch up to the level that i wanted to be at and to end up working at the places that i did when you first get into restaurants and you know you're working in front of house as a server like first the goal is just to make money was that kind of the reason you always stayed in the front there's a lot of people especially chefs they're like oh i started out in restaurants and i was waiting tables and stuff and then i saw how much fun they were having in the kitchen and that's where i wanted to go right but for you was it mainly you wanted to stay in the front of the house because you make more money there and that was kind of at the time when you first get into it that was the main goal was to supplement your income with the film stuff it was definitely a supplemental income thing at first and not that i don't look back on those early experiences with uh, with a smile on my face and i know how important they were and being professional foundations but you know being a busboy sucked and didn't pay much so i wanted to bump up to being a runner and then i was like oh you can make more as a captain and um, being you know a little underqualified in each position that i took it was i guess easier to move up at first to kind of make a uh, upwards moves to different restaurants and to grow within the restaurants that I was working at. Now there's a story. I think it was when you were at Barbalude that you sold enough wine there to get like a free meal. Is that true? Was that an accurate thing that happened? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very still am, um, but definitely back then was very sales driven and, and competitive with sell this many specials or sell this wine by the glass. So that particular story, I had won the special contest or something the night before and didn't end up claiming my prize. So at lunch the next day, which turned out to be like a, you know, four cover bust or nothing going on. As I mentioned, I'm kind of a, you know, idle hands or the devil's playground kind of person, or at least definitely was in my early twenties. I was like, oh, it's, it's slow. There's nothing that's going to suffer of this and engage in some cognitive dissonance to convince myself it was okay to order food in the middle of service, but fired up a duck confit with pump puree for myself and went downstairs to eat it and nothing was uh was really going too wrong at the time but then the uh the maitre d slash floor manager who believe it or not me enough clashed heads with a little bit um came downstairs and was just like what are you doing and it was just like this is my prize i won the contest uh you know it's not a big deal and i think it would have been fine and like it would have been the end of it if had i not gone upstairs afterwards and asked him for my 30 percent employee discounts in the middle of uh, lunch service uh, which prompted him to run into a manager meeting with daniel balud present and attempt to fire me and then somebody decided to save me from that but uh, i guess my sales were good enough to justify my continued employment but it wasn't the best look or the most professional thing to do do restaurants still kind of operate that way will they'll have sommelier competitions kind of within the ranks or is that kind of just an era thing and that no longer really kind of takes place it depends i mean i walked into uh you know, one of our cohorts the other day for lunch and heard them introducing one of the new sakes by the glass and you know they're like a you know sales contest whoever sells the most dosai you know gets a free set of tamakis at the end or something it's still out there it's uh, i'd say a little more difficult given our model of restaurant because everyone takes the omakase so there's no real like things to sell other than supplements or at least it's just you know something we don't really feel like we need to do just because everyone's kind of on it and selling already but i'd say it's definitely something that's that's prominent and an effective tool and i've always been been motivated by food so clearly worked with me when you go out like when you're not working can you tell if there's like a competition kind of going on just knowing like how it all operates like are you able to be like oh okay like they're really trying to like get through like this wine or whatever yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, at least from my observations, most training, it brings a little, you know, tact to those, those sales pitches. Definitely when someone's verbaling the, the specials of the evening and they lean particularly heavily into, you know, a certain spiel or a certain item kind of makes me like perk my eyebrows up. But yeah, I haven't seen any anything too aggressive. You know, Barbalu is another environment where I learned the, the difference between a, a soft sell and a hard sell and, you know, not uh, talking a guest out of something that they've ordered into the, the special I want to sell them for the evening or convincing, you know, parents taking their kid out for brunch that they need, uh, you know, $60 worth of white truffle shaved on their pasta or something. So, um, you know, those were lessons uh, hard learned, but since absorbed for sure. Was there a moment for you that you 
knew you wanted to be a wine professional, like you really got interested in wine? A couple of moments, like, you know, looking back in life where I'm like, I have always been inter- interested in food or in some way been discerning with like flavors or just had a, a memory for it. But Barbalute again was, you know, that first environment where you know, the person I was working under, you know, bodied a, a sense of having fun and being able to open up wine to a number of different people and, you know, like a completely multicultural staff of people from different backgrounds and just in some way making it inviting and accessible to everybody while just being an absolute expert in what they, you know, were conveying and, and listing on their list. Um, so I took some sort of inspiration out of that it was like, you know, you don't have to be stiff and rigid to do this job. You can actually have fun with it and you can inspire people and affect positive change and kind of pass on the baton as you go. So it's, um, you know, it's been something that's remain part of my core ethos and something I'd you know, at least like to think I haven't lost sight of. When you're at Bully for the first time, what was it about that environment that was so challenging to the point where like, you know, you wind up getting like fired. You wind up going back later, as you mentioned. And for those that don't know, Bully was a pretty infamous, famous restaurant, you know, years ago, chef owner restaurant, kind of pushing the bar of cuisine I'm at the time in New York and everything like different awards list accolades list, all that stuff. What was it about that environment that just, it didn't click with you the first time anyways? I mean, Barbalude is a higher volume restaurant that does, I mean, service is good, but you know, white tablecloth, fine dining service, it's a, it's a bistro. So, you know, while there were absolutely, you know, fine dining inflections from it being a Danielle Balud restaurant and just how we conducted service, I, you know, walked into um, Boulay, which was a much more, you know, detail focused environment and you know, maybe a little bit more of a malicious one in terms of, of culture on the floor. So yeah, it's, it's a place where you, you don't really get taught how it works. It's like, sink or swim figure it out and if you don't then you go and yeah didn't have uh too much help in figuring it out at first and may or may not uh, break things from time to time and i uh, wouldn't quite call myself the picture of grace you know just didn't know how to to operate how to move in a in a dining room like that at the time and uh when you walk in bumbling and making mistakes and that kind of becomes what's associated with you at first so it's, it's hard to break out of just not being skillful enough and then being expected to catch up and you're already behind. So it also didn't help that my first day in service was a, a wedding buyout and I dropped in a tray, tray of champagne flutes about three minutes before the wedding procession walked in. So that was kind of fighting uh, from behind the eight ball from day one. So how did you wind up back there? Did they reach out to you to come back? Like, hey, this guy kind of, you know, he's here for six months. He knows kind of how we do things, right? Like, so he'll be able to pick it up faster than other people. Was that their logic? It was something like that. I mean, the I don't know if they're going too much detail. The The way I got fired was questionable by some of them may or may not have been looking for a reason. So um, I, I was offered my job back as as a front server at the time, but I declined because I had accepted the, the sommelier job at, at Commerce. But the beverage director from Boulay at the time, uh, Adrian Falcone, who you know, still a friend of mine, came into Commerce to have dinner with his wife. And the restaurant, as I mentioned, is a little more casual and, you know, just an a la carte menu. But the uh, the chef was from um, had worked at restaurant Danielle, and you know I asked him. I was like, "Hey, somebody important to me is coming in. Do you mind if we serve him a, a menu and you know break some of the larger plates into like you know diminishing return fine dining portions?" And I basically created like a boule style menu with pairings out of the commerce menu, and then served it to Adrian. And I guess that was an adequate uh, re-interview just to show that poor pairings because I would proceed to pour many thousands of pairings for the next two years once I went back to Boulay. You know, showed him despite that, you know, really unfortunate first round of it, which was very discouraging and did make me question at the time, like, do I belong in fine dining restaurants? Can I actually do this? And it, it was a pretty big slap in the face at that point. You know, just showed him that, like, even if it didn't work out there, you know, if I have to go somewhere, you know, more casual and lower end restaurants that um, I was still interested in pursuing what I'd started to. And that was to become a sommelier. So a year to the day after me starting at Commerce, he you know called me and said, we have a, a spot open on the Somme team. Do you want it? And I was like, we chef. That was basically it. So when you move into that role, going back to a place you already worked and you know now you're on the Somme team, is it very different from your previous stint or is it just kind of, did it feel like an extension? Like, yeah, I'm back here. Maybe didn't go super great the first time, but like I kind of get what you guys are doing. Obviously, you have more experience, more confidence at that point too, as well. I mean, the good thing was, you know, despite the fact that I wasn't good at the job, I mostly got along well with the team. So, you know, when it came back, everyone's like, "Oh, like this asshole's back." You know, I was ready that time, and um, it went a lot better around too. Eventually, I think you 
get kind of a, like you mentioned, Bettany, you go over there, wine director for the first time. Was that a jump that you were looking to make after, you know, your second stint at Bully or was that just an opportunity that came out of the blue? Like, how did that all materialize for you? It wasn't, it wasn't. I, um, I wasn't actively looking at the time and I had, I had an offer randomly come across, you know, my desk, so to speak, that, you know, there's a restaurant that was looking for a beverage director and I wasn't particularly interested after assessing it, but that did kind of get the wheels turning of, you know, how much more can I elevate working at Boulay and, you know, being somebody's number two. And, you know, at that point to take it on like, you know, staff training and management of the cocktail program and, you know, whatever else really needed to come up um, that I needed to handle. Also mentioned, I have taken jobs where I'm like a little bit behind the eight ball upon taking it and maybe a little less experience than I need, but, you know, have the motivation to make up for it and to, to hit the learning curve. So Bettany was another restaurant where I'd had interaction with with staff there and had eaten at the restaurants and had taken care of, you know, their team and, you know, what they were doing in the cocktail and beverage world at that point. And, you know, it's their progressive menu, some place that I was gravitating towards that I'd had meaningful personal experience and uh, dining experience in. Yeah, randomly just had got wind on, I think I saw it on like culinary agents or something that they were looking for a beverage director and just sent in my resume and like, you know, sent them this whole formal um, cover letter. And I just got an email back like, oh, hey, what's up, Dean? And it was, uh, you know, from their, their GM at the time and had, I think, three or four interviews in total because it was just like, hey, you've never been a beverage director. You're unproven. Um, but, you know, are you ready for this? And at like a, you know, stack, you know, 10 inches high of all the training pamphlets I've made at Boulay and all this stuff. And again, showed that I was eager and kind of hungry for it. But yeah, I found myself starting right in the middle of December, smack in the middle of like a busy uh, fine dining restaurant that had not had a beverage director for about four months. So had a lot of organizing to do and, you know, also just learning how to be in that position, how to be, you know, publicly facing that you start having you know, a lot more eyes on you as a, a wine professional and um, just adjusting to that new attention and you know managing all of it yeah by the time i, uh, I figured out how to do it and get the got the place running smooth the, uh, the restaurant closed so that was another cause for you know taking a break and, and reflecting on what, what the next steps are going to be and what the path is you take that first wine director job and like you mentioned you know there's no director in that position for like four months before you get there was that the biggest challenge was just getting everything organized so you could figure out what exactly do i need to tinker with from this program at first, for sure. And I mean, that's it is something that is is one of the enjoyable parts of the job for me. I do like organizing things and creating systems. So you know, with how excited I was to take the job and just how revved up I was, it was like, yeah, let's knock this out and make it happen. But the only time that was really available to like pull everything out and and do it in one shot was over um, Christmas Eve and Christmas because the restaurant was closed. So I ended up hanging out in the wine cellar on Christmas, just like knocking it out. But my gift was that it was organized after it was done. So, but it was, it was definitely a lot of rewiring and optimizing, and so it's, it's all there's always running things off to you know make the program yours when you first get there. So it was just you know, walking into something that, you know, wasn't familiar to me that was in a state of kind of disarray. And just uh, that first month was spending a lot of time in, in, in the cellar and just reorganizing things. But in doing so, um, started the new year feeling like it was mine. And So when eventually you make it over to Sushi Nakazawa, take over kind of beverage director duties there, what is the biggest challenge? Is it the pairings where normally you're not pairing with sushi, but now you are? Or... Is it, like you mentioned earlier, the sake list, like learning, getting all that knowledge? Was that kind of the biggest initial challenge when, because a sushi restaurant is completely different from your fine dining restaurant. The progression, the speed of how fast, like the cuisine moves to as well. Like you can think of the DC one. I mean, it's, it was lunch, but it, I mean, it's like 90 minutes. Like you're in, it's moving, it's moving. And it, I mean, that's also one of the highlights of it is where, you're not there for three and a half hours. You can be if you want to, or maybe not three and a half hours, but one of the highlights is you have this great experience and it's like 90 minutes and it's like, cool. Now what else are we going to do? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a complete segue, you know, using Bettany or Boulay as an example, you know, you have one dish and you pair one wine and you're on to the next one. So you can really dial in one thing on the other. And whereas with at least, you know, omakase or our style of the menu, you know, you have one sake that rides four pieces of sushi. So you really need to look more for, for versatility and, and, you know, building an arc and progression in, in what you're serving and not necessarily just hitting one thing on the head. It's finding something that might react differently given different seasoning or different fat levels or textures. And then as, you know, I mentioned, just 
coming from wine into sake completely you know just starting from scratch in terms of what your at least your available rolodex is you know you can learn what junmai daiginjo and all the classifications you know mean on paper but they're much more nebulous compared with wine and only just in the last few years of geographical indications really started becoming a thing for sake and you know an equivalent sense of terroir typicity you know really just an emerging conversation compared with you know something that's been charted out for hundreds of years in you know european and classic wine production completely different animal and you know found that lower acid higher aromatic uh, white wines were more akin to Jumai Daiginjo's. So Kondryu was the, the first kind of benchmark wine that was in some way like, not, not a barometer, um, just an effective gauge of like texture and residual sugar and aromatics. Yeah, it's just completely recalibrating your, your palate to not craving acidity or thinking something's bad if it doesn't have acidity. You know, learning a, a harder water source might emulate tannin in terms of the texture of a sake compared with softer water that's going to be a little like cleaner and rounder in terms of mouthfeel so yeah just redialing after thinking you you know what your palate is for is it basically like learning another language like you learn the language of wine and then now you have to learn this whole other language because there's i mean there's like parts of it that are you know similar but like you said at the time there wasn't really any gi identifiers or anything like that um, yeah, I mean, you're completely learning a new language. You cannot generally read the front labels uh, for a lot of a lot of these beverages. I picked up a thing here and there, but I'm definitely not fluid in kanji. So um, it's uh, yeah, a very, very difficult language barrier. And I guess one of the encouraging things about wine for me was that, you know, romance languages were kind of easy for me to wrap my head around and just wine label terms in general. But um, again, that went completely out the window once I started looking at sake bottles and it took me like a month to like figure out how to say the table numbers correctly in Japanese. That's an indication of how hard I was hitting my head against the wall at first, but eventually broke through. How do you know if a sake is worthy adding to the menu? Do you look for something specific outside of flavor profile, region, small producer versus big producer? Like what's kind of your process for vetting something before it even makes it into, you know, the book? I mean, tasting is really the most important thing. I think it's first and foremost for anything between sake and wine. But, you know, f- through a few different few different methods, you know, keep a, a finger on the pulse of what's, you know, coming into the country or what's getting hot in Japan and try to get a hold of it. You know, I think it's just the same as having a large wine list here and that, you know, we do have Muscadet and we do have Napa Cabernet and everything in between. With sake, you have a real just myriad of flavor profiles and styles themselves and textures and our whole ethos with the beverage program here is to have a selection of sake that's akin to having, you know, a strong, deep French wine list and, you know, not just having one cuvee from each producer, but showing their entire lineup. And um, I think in that way, being able to, you know, show a regional style of what these benchmark producers are doing. I mean, it's, uh, it's really, it's, I think Junmai Daiginjo is associated with, you know, quality in, in sake. And honestly, at some point, they can become a little homogeneous in terms of flavor profile and style. Well, you know, like floral, um, you know, pretty fruit and very crisp and clean. You know, there's, a, I think, a movement going in the other direction now where there's some producers who are only polishing 10% off their rice and they're focusing on what the outer brand of the rice brings to the character of the sake and not just going for these, you know, clean, um, elegant, dilute, fleeting uh, styles of sake. So I think it, it just comes into trying to create the most complete picture of what's going on. Uh, with with sake in general and how we're kind of becoming a platform for it and it's an effective way to both display these producers and you know also sell some of these higher end items is there a style or a brewer of sake that you kind of gravitate towards or want to focus more on because you're constantly learning right like there's you're always discovering new producers and maybe they change things (laughs) and how they're doing things and somebody who maybe you weren't a fan of you know, they come out with something that now you are or whatever. So is there anything that you either dismissed previously or hadn't really focused on that you're kind of looking at going like, yeah, this is something I didn't think would really fit, but now it kind of does. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm close off to anything. You know, there's a, an emerging kind of say like natty sake movement with nothing wrong with natural wine or things that can be a little volatile, but you know, I do believe in de- dependability of product. And, you know, when you have a, a case of 12 and all 12 are, are different, you know, it's a little hard to get behind that as a, just something you can rely on what it's going to taste like when you're opening. So tasted again, a few of these producers that are kind of eschewing the, the hyper-polished Junmai Daiginjo end of the spectrum and going back towards this more, you know, rustic ambient yeast fermentation, kind of funky, volatile acidity driven style. And some of them have tasted 
have been excellent and some of them you know a little spotty so it's just something that kind of something i like i love about sake is like even year on year which vintage is becoming an emerging conversation but you can generally depend on how style tasting the same um every time you taste the sake so i guess the opening of mind is that some of these things are are worth taking a gamble on how stable they can be as products because they're they're still really delicious and unique and special but it's i guess more of a, a business concern people are creatures of habit and i think a lot of people especially in america their first introduction to sake is probably through some sort of buffet situation i would assume and when you have that first experience and it's not something you enjoy like you kind of write it off like we all do it with different things how do you try and get someone who had a bad sake experience never really went back to it like how do you try to get them to be open-minded to it especially when they come into sushi nakazawa and you have this great omakase situation and and you're going to go through all that like yeah we have a great wine list but like there might be something in the sake list if you're open how do you get them to kind of be open at that point um i mean for us specifically it's it's great at this point that people do come to our restaurant yes come to dine with us and they do specifically seek out sake one of the most frequent you know things i hear at a beverage greet is like i want to do sake but i know nothing about it and there is um, you know whether our restaurant or otherwise i think more of an open mind and a willingness to try it and to substitute wine with sake but you know that's what's great about you know having a sommelier team here and having a big list is we do have people that are interested but you know really just starting at the bottom for um a knowledge level and the bottle selections or the pairing where we you know pour seven different types of sake all of which are uh, markedly different in in style that you know you can take somebody who doesn't know anything and you know just objectively speaking um you're tasting different things so it does promote you know thought and, and interest and just a deeper understanding of uh, again what can be a very nebulous beverage category with i think you know a much higher bar for entry compared with wine to really understanding it as a consumer but you know just in in general you just have to get sake in front of people and you know like my first experience with it as a, a native new yorker was you know drinking like you know shitty like nigori on saint mark street with my fake id when i was like 19 years old and you know it does the trick but it's not really delicious or you know having an, an environment where it's really thought-provoking if anything you know turning off your brain so i think that's a lot of at least you know westerners early association with it is you know something you, you drink at you know a cheap spot and there's just been so much more incredible products coming into the states where you know i think it's dominating the availability of those lower quality products and there's just more good stuff out there and that's kind of the baseline you know to that end i think it's just an exciting time to just go out and trust that if you go into your local wine shop that you know it's gonna be something at least decently good um, if they have sake with the wine list that you guys have because it's, it's pretty large even including sake and kind of the whole beverage list and component how do you kind of determine how big it should be do you find yourself trying to make sure it doesn't get too big do you want to have everything kind of at your fingertips depending on like who the guest is that way you can just you know if they have something specific they're looking for or they don't know what they're looking for and they're looking for something in a certain flavor profile you can just have it on site and kind of grab it for the customer experience or do you have to kind of balance those things like how do you approach the list and kind of either keeping it at the size it is or up or down or what it's to change scope a few times over the years but you know the, uh, when i first started with the, the company i mean we we had about 200 references for wine and that grew into five six hundred over two years and then um was pretty aggressively working towards um getting us into grand award territory in terms of list size and then uh realized a few months later that you know we're in a tiny west village restaurant and there are physical limitations to the seller so um it had it had ballooned up to about 900 wine references at that point. Inventory was just a nightmare and stayed organized, but it took a lot to keep it organized. Um, at that point, we you know shrunk it down another couple hundred references. I'm on the inverse, when I started, we had 70 sake selections. And as I mentioned, was not very comfortable with sake. That section became kind of depleted and run down a little bit. And then the wine was going up. And then Chef Nakazawa was asking me why that was the case. And then we skewed back in a different direction. So um, at this point, it's... Um, you know, hovers between 100 and 120 different selections for sake, which, you know, puts us amongst, you know, largest in the country, if, if not the largest. And then the wine at this point, you know, between five and 650, depending on, you know, what, what budgets allow at the time or what we're running off. In terms of having a large list, I, you know, just think having options is both great for the guests because you can have something for everybody. But, you know, also from a sales perspective, you know, you can't sell it if you don't have it. So 
you know, we're we're definitely a, an, an old world focused wine list in terms of the regions that are represented. But you know, we, we really have people drinking off of all sections of the list at this point. So it's proven that it's, it's justified to you know, have that many selections. Is the list the same across the two locations, New York, DC? So it's a little different. I mean, different markets requests are, are interested in different things. And, you know, although we have New York and DC, we did um, a few pop-up restaurants during the pandemic. So, you know, like Aspen, Miami had different tastes and LA was people were asking for different things. So it's, again, listening to your, your audience and kind of catering and, and skewing towards uh, what do you think people are interested in drinking? You guys did those pop-ups, Aspen, Miami during the pandemic. Was that just because those locations were a little bit more open with restrictions where like New York. Yeah. And I mean, also just, you know, markets that we were interested in looking in and yeah, we had a, an opportunity to come up to you know, operate out of Aspen. And after all of us being locked in our apartments for eight months in New York, you know, we we're all, yes, let's go to the mountains. Let's do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the East coast was completely shut down. There was like a three week window in the fall of 2020 that it was, we were able to work in New York, but then it, it closed down again. And, you know, Aspen, despite having its own logistical challenges, we were at least allowed to operate a restaurant. Yeah, Miami was just a free for all. So everyone was full whack operating down there. But yeah, I mean, we just, you know, pivoted as we had to. And you know, we're fortunate that there's there's interest in a restaurant in, in several cities around the country where you know, we've had the opportunity to do pop-ups like that. And uh, it proved just a perfect vessel to, to keep our team employed and to, you know, keep the brand alive during the time where a lot of people just had to kind of shut the doors and, and wait it out. You know, after half a year of doing that, we're you know, grateful that as a company, we made a decision to be proactive and, and pop into other opportunities elsewhere. Are those two locations still potential for new locations of Sushi Nakazawa? or Because there's always the rumor, maybe the LA location, right? Real thing. It's not a rumor. Now we're opening. Would you guys ever revisit the pop-up locations or was that kind of time and place served its purpose? Like, yes, there's potential here, but like we would have to do more investigating to make sure like it would actually work. Cause like Miami, like you mentioned, is kind of wild west kind of place. Like there are sushi restaurants there too as well, but and there's a Michelin guide there now, but it's still just Miami's just its own thing. Like if you've never been there, it's hard to describe what exactly you're walking into. No, I think, um, you know, I mean, those decisions are obviously above my pay grade, but I think we we saw proven success in both of those markets, and even during a you know incredibly challenging time for for restaurants. And Aspen, I would say, would probably be a long shot, just given the challenges of operating a sushi restaurant at you know eight thousand feet of elevation, and you know having one delivery day for your uni, and if it snows too much in the past, and you're just burnt till the next week, and which point the uni has gone gone bad. So it's um, or, you know, having your, your Wagyu get lost in FedEx for three weeks and then showing up and you know, it's just, you know, things you don't think of until you're up there. And, um, it's, uh, I don't know, just a very focused party town, the town that truly seeks out fine dining restaurants, um, or at least, you know, our specific kind of omakase. So yeah, it was a blast being there, but sadly don't see us coming back. I think we're, we're looking at some other, other places around the country rather with uh, nothing currently set in stone, but I think the interest and desire to expand further, if we think the landing with LA. With LA, the beverage list, are you going to incorporate more Napa wines in that list because of the regionality where it's close or even, you know, Santa Barbara has wine scene and everything too, or are you still going to try and there'll be some differences, but the core part of the beverage options will be very similar to New York and DC. I definitely plan on uh, assigning a little more weight to domestic West Coast wines. I think there is... You know, I thought there isn't an interest in, on the East Coast, but definitely, I think, a, a local pride of, of California wine that, you know, guests seek to enjoy out there. And there's definitely feedback that came away from the pop-ups, you know, feeling confident in that should give a, a little more love to, to the local winemaking. And I, I still do see it emulating our list in, on the, in New York and D.C. and that it will be, you know, French heavy and um, you know, represent a few other classic European regions. And then uh, we should be, you know, given... Uh, just for, just for my my market research, I think we'll also you know be having the we'll open with the largest sake selection in in Los Angeles, and that'll be I think definitely the the focus there in our pairing programs, which will have um you know wine, sake, and um, exploring non alcoholic as well, which I think um another thing we need to cater to a little bit more is the the fact that people have to drive in LA but still want to enjoy something cool with their amakase. You mentioned in an interview around the pandemic times 
that it was after you guys kind of returned and you were having people guests come in who had like never been there before maybe had been there before a couple times but they were just running through a section of the wine list they would just never return again was that a place and time thing or is that still happening because people can't find or can't get certain bottles that you would have like is that still a thing that's going on so that that guy in particular so i remember who i was talking about um he ended up coming back a couple times when we first met him, you know, I've, I'm a, I'm a Rhone wine lover and, um, specifically Cornas and Cote Rixie. And those are, you know, always appellations that are strongly represented on our list. And um, that was part of my uh, aforementioned aggressive buying phase of, we're going to have a massive Rhone section. We're going to do this and, you know, build it up and do verticals. And the, the wines sat for, you know, a couple of years and hadn't really moved too much. And then this guy just came in and for three weeks straight was having me organize Noel Versailles, August Clap, Gigal, tasting dinners for him in the restaurant and with all of his guests. And yeah, that, that page shrunk in like half in that time. And some guests will, will travel around, you know, for most of the year. And when they're in New York, they'll stop in and, you know, see us and say hello to the wine list. Yeah, it's just, you know, what I said about having options for everybody. It's, uh, you just don't know if that stuff will sell until you find the right guy who gets excited about it. And, now I have to keep up with with his taste anytime he comes in of having that, that page look flush and again not just having the one bottle of August clap but discussing which vintages of clap you should be drinking that night and um, it's just not you know often a, a palate you have to work with in a, a Japanese restaurant so it's one that's I think um, at least gotten some sort of recognition for our program from guests and that they do come there for our, our beverage program in some regard yeah it just also gives us a lot, lots of options to play with. I think this past summer, Sushi Nakazawa was selected by World of Fine Wine as the best sake list in North America. Knowing what you had to go through to get up to speed with sake, what does that accolade mean to you? Is, is that something super special because you had to do all this knowledge? Is it just another accolade and it's like, that's great, but that's not you know why we do this kind of thing? Like, What does it mean for you? It means a lot. And we um, we went on from being the North America prize to actually uh, winning the global prize. So according to World Defined Wine, having the, the best sake program outside of Japan, um, period, which means a whole hell of a lot for sure. And, you know, just for my own journey of learning sake and getting into it and maybe, you know, leaning heavier into it these days compared with wine in terms of just what my day-to-day focus is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very validating. It, it means a lot for our program and, you know, what we'll continue to be able to offer um, in terms of sake and what we get access to. And, you know, just think there are a number of restaurants you can look at around the, the country and, you know, be like, that's, you know, one of the greatest wine restaurants in the United States. And I don't know, like, how many you can look at in the, you know, not just the Japanese world, but in any restaurant in general. Um, of just sake getting recognition and being put on the same same level and playing field as as wine so yeah like the word feels good not something i like stake my happiness or satisfaction on in terms of you know being a, a beverage professional but um, i think what it means for for our restaurant and what we'll continue to be able to be as a sake restaurant and a, a sake driven restaurant and to just be a platform for sake in general i think it's it's huge you yourself i think are certified through wset level three any intention on either going through the sake certifications or going for you know, your level four, your diploma? Um, I started diploma and gone through the theory and then didn't continue through the, the tasting parts. But that was yeah, back in like 2016, I think, 2015. Not early in that, sorry, 2014. But I did take my, my level one sake WSET with, um, you know, with Monica Samuels uh, early, like about a year ago. have been you know, waiting for the level three to come into New York. Definitely interested in, in continuing on with that. Um, I did uh, complete a really incredible course with Michael Tremblay. It's a sake sommelier and just published a really incredible book on, on sake as well, which just received a James Beard Award. Um, but I took a, a three-day intensive course with him. That was just eight hours a day of going through every single prefecture of Japan, local water sources, mountain ranges, rice varieties, yeast strains. Um, it was just like a real just intensive dive into things that, um, you know, I'd studied, but just didn't have that tight of a knowledge on and found that to be incredibly beneficial. But yeah, besides that, just try to keep, keep learning more every day and, and stay on top of what's going on in the greater industry. With sake and, and going through that process, are you surprised at how much more you're able to learn going through like a certification course than maybe you would be in, in wine? Like wine, like I, I think, like a lot of the stuff kind of overlaps, right? Like a lot of information from organization to organization probably. But with sake, it feels like you can really get into 
because it's kind of a mix of beer and brewing and, and wine. Like it kind of threads that needle. So do you wind up discovering more information like that you didn't knew or you knew you had a little bit of knowledge of, but you're like, oh, I didn't know it was like this extensive or, or something like that versus wine when you were going through that? I would say coming from wine and just learning how to organize you know, all just that amount of information and to be able to recall it gave me a leg up in learning sake. But I think I think it prompted more questions. Again, just learning what the terminology of sake means. It you know, like Junmai Daiginjo just means you're polishing the rice at least fifty percent, but it gives you no indication of what the sake itself is going to taste like. You know, I think without having the actual reference points of tasting things alongside the explanation of what it is is more um just challenging because you really have to I think compared with wine where a lot of the answers are out there or there's this from you know guild som to w set to you know whoever um, there's so many thorough technical resources on really anything in the world of wine whereas you know some breweries will just intentionally not disclose certain things about the production because they want you to focus on the rice not the the yeast or how much the polishing is and um, i've had instances where i've you know been curious about what the, the yeast strain was on a sake and had to ask the ask my my rep for our distributor to then ask the U.S. national representative for the brewery to then kick it over to Japan to then go to like somebody else up the chain, and then they came back and they're like, "It's yeast number seven. And I'm just like, "Okay, can we like have some more of a accessible path to learning some of the stuff?" And and I think yeah, it's just not part of the the culture, maybe not widespread, but for you know sommeliers, we're trying to learn all this detailed information so we can convey it to guests um, in the best way possible, and you know, thus accomplish a sales chain for everybody. So it's just the more we're informed, uh, the better off i think it is but sometimes it really is like pulling teeth trying to get pretty basic information on just like what something is and then that information on paper might have nothing to do with what it tastes like the worst part is you just have to drink a lot of different sake to start really wrapping your head around it and learning it but um you know it just comes back to accessibility for your average consumer when you get the chance to go out when you're not working do you compulsively check kind of the wine list to see what they have or are you able to kind of separate and just I'm here for an experience and I don't need to compulsively look at that real quick. It depends. I'm definitely a compulsive researcher, but you know, there, there are occasions where, you know, it's more about the, the company than the local. So learn how to turn it off sometimes, but not all the time. Is there a wine region or style that you kind of find yourself gravitating towards? You know, I think most wine professionals have some bottle, some region that like when they had that, that was like, Wow. And that's why they got sucked into the world. So did you have one? I did. Um, I've mentioned it in the past to some people, but it's, uh, you know, I can just tell how much I love it by how much I was talking about Clap. But uh, August Clap, uh, Kornos, 1999, which we were pouring out of Magnum uh, by the glass at Barbalude is one of the, the wine specials. And um, that was, yeah, just the first one that just like knocked my socks off and was just like, how can this smell like so many different things all at once and continue to develop? And I mean, you know, this wine's characteristically are very, very savory and, and soulful. And, you know, that was kind of a, a profile that I've, I've leaned towards and, you know, these reds that have really captivated me. But that was, yeah, the first one that I can jump back to and blame for everything else I've endured in the last 12 years. But. Is there a, a region, whether it's wine or sake, that you're excited to focus on as you build out the list for the LA location? Again, it'll, at least on opening, be a smaller snapshot of our, our New York and DC programs. It's the same bare bones, just leaning a little more into you know domestic side of things. So, I mean, in general, I, mean, I don't think there'll be anything too too different about it. Um, Bur- Champagne, Burgundy, Rhone heavy, Germany, Austria, Portugal, Spain, a couple other kind of coup de corps sprinkled in here and there. Is there a uh, a wine region that you think people should be paying more attention to? You guys have your core list, but there's always stuff changing, always new producers getting some press and publication and hype and everything. But is there any region that you think is going to be like the next place that everybody will be kind of gravitating towards and possibly driving up the price, unfortunately, as it comes with things becoming more popular? Portugal has always been... Uh kind of a passion region of mine and one that's been well represented on you know at least the the two programs that i've been running but i yeah i mean the wines just com- comparable cohorts from france you're drinking things that are a fraction of the price and i think have just as much depth and, and concentration and historical merits you know progressive farming practices and seeing them increasing in price slowly but steadily depending on what they are so you know the the flag's already up but you know i think it just pre- presents some of the greatest uh, values in, in the wine world and 
wines are absolutely killer with sushi. Is there a, a wine or a grape that's underrated or not quite known that you think deserves more recognition? Uh, ferment from Hungary. What's uh, next for you professionally? Obviously, the LA list is going to take a, a good chunk of your time, but anything else going on? I've been exploring the idea of importing my own sake as well. So I've been having some some conversations around that and a project and looking to move forward with starting the next year. With that project, would that be importing from producers? Like you got to get an import license or are you going to be partnering with like a brewery to like kind of do a, a special sake? The former, but still hammering out those details. So this next question uh, comes from previous guest on the podcast, Chef de Cuisine, Richard Neal of Bastion in Nashville. He left behind for you. If you could only operate with one color moving forward for the rest of your career, which would it be and why? You know, operating with wine, it all has to be yellow or it would all have to be um, golden because the color gets real technical. Let's go with uh, pale lemon with, uh, with green inflections. <laughs> What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? If you had to drop it all right now and start over, what would you do? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, which country's wine pairs best with an omakase experience? I have to say France because champagne is there. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare contrast across the episodes for all the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? Michael Madrigal. What is your desert island wine? 1996 Krug Clos de Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario, usually get a person gets stuck at the airport. You guys are closed, but they reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Go to Crew, K-R-U, in Brooklyn, which is an incredible Thai restaurant. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Any place that you have not traveled to, you still want to visit one day. Any restaurant you have not dined at that you still want to visit and eat at one day. I've not been to Korea. Next up on my bucket list is Sushi Abashi Jiro in Tokyo. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? One of them was at Boulay of a guest who always insisted on in being in the center table of the dining room, passing out in the middle of Thanksgiving service, face down in his soup that was up there. And I kind of like morbid, like people are getting hurt or like being sick and stuff. It's like the first things that are coming to mind right now. <laughs> One of the busboys changing the apples in the apple room in Boulay and then the ladder collapsing and him falling into the entire thing and taking it down. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is fairly unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Um, McDonald's chicken McNuggets. So recommendations. So we broke this into four categories. So you can go wine or sake, whatever you want to do here. But zero to twenty dollars a bottle, zero to fifty, zero to hundred, and then over a hundred, no limit. If all of the first three are under twenty, uh, they can fit in uh, any of those categories, obviously. But this is kind of person that interest that is interested in wine and sake. These are kind of the things that you think they should be drinking. Just their great quality for the price point and. And that's something that they should kind of seek out. Um, for the under 20 category, I would steer you towards Tozai Living Jewel Junmai from Kyoto. It's a very approachable, light-bodied, crisp, and clean uh, Junmai. Next range, that's, I think, generally like 15-ish bucks a bottle, sub-20. Next range, let's see. Let's go with Omine Shuzo. That's O-H-M-I-N-E-S-H-U-Z-O. Three-grain Junmai Daiginjo. Um, they're a brewery in Yamaguchi, Japan that was defunct since the 1950s and then just reopened in the uh, early 2010s, which is now actually co-owned by um, Pharrell Williams and Nigo. They were like pouring the sake at the Louis Vuitton fashion show in Paris this past year, uh, but really just um, beautifully expressive, floral, uh, melon-laden, uh, delicately sweet and fresh uh, Junmai Daiginjo. Uh, going up the range, let's do... Toko Divine Droplets, uh, Junmai Daiginjo Shizuku uh, from Yamagata, Japan. That is um, a sake made in basically uh, clarified via gravity, whereas most sake is pressed directly after it's fermented. These sake are transferred into porous bags and they just allow gravity to draw the work uh, drop by drop. So it uh, lends a little more kind of roundness, texture, delicate savoriness to it. And then finally, Let's go with Nishide Shuzo 100-year Junmai Daiginjo, which is made from a three-person brewery in Ishikawa in coastal Japan. I think it's actually the smallest brewery that's exported 
um, to the States. And they have um, a sake that they bottle in beautiful hand-painted uh, Kutani Yaki porcelain. So just the bottle itself is, is beautiful, but then the sake inside is fermented rather with um, an ambient house yeast, or Kuratsuki Kobo, which gives the sake this really unique um, umami character from a spread of four. What is one book focused on beverage that you think everyone should read? Exploring the World of Japanese Craft Sake by Michael Tremblay. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, culinary personality, Emerald, Jacques Pepin, that you just kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? I'm blanking on recalling Anthony Bourdain right now, but I did watch No Reservations very frequently. But is there anybody else who, who maybe you paid more attention to rather than him, like Emerald or, or somebody um, just who was on TV, but in the you know cooking or, or wine world? Daniel Balud at that time, like the time I was working for him, um, you know, still, still a rock star and an inspiration, but you know, it was especially kind of a celebrity shocked anytime he walked into the dining room when I was at Bar Balud. There's a, and there's an episode where he's describing a time that Puff Daddy came into Danielle with Jay-Z and like ordered white truffles and the waiter stopped shaving the, the truffle and Puff Daddy like pulls his glasses down and looks up at him. And he's just like, keep shaving that bitch. Danielle Balloon was telling that story. So that was a pretty funny one. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Grand Crew Jew. And then also Sushi Nakazawa has an account. They post here or there. At Sushi Nakazawa LA coming up very soon. The one website, and you kind of select location off of that, if I remember correctly, and book reservations. And I know the DC restaurant is open for lunch during the week, and then also dinner service. I think New York is pretty much the same way, too. I think you guys are open like every day. Seven days, lunch and dinner. I mean, I've been to the DC one. Awesome experience there. Yeah, looking forward to coming to the New York one sometime early next year. Yeah, it's always cool. Like, it's super hard to find places since COVID, too, now that do lunch. And then when you can find like an omakase experience for lunch, it's just like, it's really hard to find great restaurants that do lunch. And it makes sense. I mean, it's, you got to have extra ingredients, staff, wages, all that stuff, opening hour, like makes complete sense. But like when I was in San Francisco the last time, it was just shocking how little was open for lunch anymore. And you're just like, it's, this is a major city. And like, I'm struggling to find a place to go get lunch. Uh, it's a thing for sure. But yeah, we're a, we're a nonstop fish bit machine. So you know, come see us anytime. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, this was awesome. And uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, sometime early next year. But stay in touch. And uh, if you need anything from us, let us know. We try and support everybody as much as we can who comes on the podcast. So you know, thanks again. And uh, yeah, we'll be seeing you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Big thanks again to Dean for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day, being flexible to reschedule a few weeks before we were supposed to record this. And I got sick due to just the daycare germs that uh, inevitably make their way into your life and wasn't able to really effectively do a full length podcast. So we had to reschedule and then he had some travel stuff too as well. So we figured it out. Great to have him on. Great to just talk sushi and wine and sake and just kind of how all that intertwines and works together so it's always an awesome experience to be able to talk to anybody kind of in one of those kind of professions um, since it's just kind of some of my favorite stuff and just something i'm super interested in so uh, again you can follow dean on instagram at grand crew jew you can also follow the restaurant sushi nakazawa uh, they got three different accounts at sushi nakazawa which is their new york location at sushi nakazawa dc and then at sushi nakazawa la so and i think in their bios they have all the accounts kind of linked to as well so you find one you kind of find them all find us on instagram too as well at spoon mob make sure to check out our website spoonmob.com and then also follow subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from podcast is available on our youtube channel as well so you can go to youtube search spoon mob should come up uh, you can also type into you know your web browser or whatever, just youtube.com backslash at SpoonMob, and it should take you right to our channel too as well. All the episodes go up there, um, so some people prefer to use YouTube as kind of their podcast device platform that they use to consume podcasts. They work from home or whatnot, just kind of have it on their TV, playing through their sound system or whatever, so we wanted to make that available to everybody. So all the episodes are there too as well, but appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. Continue to help spread the word. You wind up at any of these establishments, make sure to let them know that you heard their interview and episode on the Spoon Mom podcast. 
just kind of lets them know that it's reaching their right demographic and target audience and reaching the people they want to reach and uh, help support them as much as you can. We try and support everybody who comes on, whether it's uh, resharing uh, Instagram posts for new dishes or new events they have coming up. You know, when they change over menus, uh, having people back on to talk about new concepts or new openings, all that kind of stuff. So we always try and support everybody as much as we can and keep an open invitation for anybody to come back on whenever they feel ready or whenever um, there's something for them to promote and that they want to chat about too as well. Uh, that is it for this week. I appreciate everybody who's been listening. Again, if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for the continued support. And we will talk to you guys next week on Wednesday. Thursday's Thanksgiving, so we wanted to make sure our episode dropped so you guys had it in case you were traveling for Thanksgiving, whether it's a road trip, by car, going through an airport, whatever. Wednesday's a pretty big travel day, so we wanted everybody to have that. So if they want to listen to it while they're traveling or if they want to save it for when they're traveling back or what have you, uh, that way it's available for that kind of long extended break and weekend. So it'll drop Wednesday, 1 a.m. Eastern. That's kind of it for the updates this week. So we'll talk to you guys next week.